This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Codley Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation. I think there are a few things that motivate me. One, definitely having the disease drives a lot of that passion, I think. And, you know, having friends and being so close with the disease community definitely provides a lot of motivation. Um, But also, I just, I really like science also. And when I'm in the lab, I don't really think about the fact that I have SMA. I mean, mean, on the one hand, of course, it, it affects every part of my life. So, of course, I know that I have it. But, you know, when I'm doing my science, I'm just thinking about the science. That's Audrey Winklesass, a young woman who has a rare genetic disease called spinal muscular atrophy, or SMA. As a result, her physical skills are limited, but certainly not her passion for science. She's researching a novel medication for the disease which would complement existing treatments and help slow the disease's progression. And she's doing it with an unconventional lab assistant, her mother. This is so great to be talking with you because you do such fascinating work. Thank you. Am I right that your work focuses almost entirely on spinal muscular atrophy? Well, spinal muscular atrophy, or SMA, was the main focus of my thesis project, yes. But I'm also interested in other neuromuscular disease, understanding disease mechanisms, and also developing therapeutic strategies for them. But yes, my my work to date has mostly focused on SMA. When you have spinal muscular atrophy, what are your symptoms? It's a neuromuscular disease that's caused by the death of motor neurons, which leads to muscle atrophy because um, motor neurons signal to our muscles to tell them to move. And so when muscles don't get that signal, don't get that input, they will grow weak. And so in the case of SMA, it's usually, symptom onset is usually within weeks or months of birth, although there can be later onset as well. And so in terms of clinical symptoms, parents often will say their babies were like floppy, um, which mm. again is due to low muscle tone. Um, there's often like a weak cough because the muscles that um, help with respiratory function are weak. So am I right that this is caused by a mutation in the gene that produces a protein that helps keep alive the motor neurons? Exactly, yes. So SMA oh, is good. caused... Oh, good. I get an A on that. That's great. <laughs> a, a, a plus. Uh, yeah. So, so why do they need this protein to keep alive? Well, so interestingly, the gene is called survival motor neuron 1 and encodes the protein survival motor neuron protein. Um, and so, yes, as you said, I think this protein was absolutely named survival motor neuron. But anyway, so the SMN protein, essentially it helps control how RNAs are processed in cells. And so without this protein, the, the neurons are not at their best health and they, they die. So the mutation in the gene, which is called SMN1, so that gets a mutation that keeps it from producing this protein that helps keep 
or that does keep motor neurons alive. But then there's another, almost a copy of it. And what's that called? Yeah, so that's called the SMN2 gene. Most proteins are encoded by one gene. But what's really interesting is that the SMN protein is actually encoded by two different genes, SMN1 and SMN2. And this is due to a duplication that happened pretty recently in, in our evolutionary past. I, I don't know exactly when it, when it happened. I will say that if people did not have SMN2 and only had mutation in SMN1, cells cannot survive without that. If you look at the SMA population as a whole, the more copies of the SMN2 gene you have, the less severe the disease. And this is thought to be because each copy of the SMN2 gene is able to produce a little bit of the full-length SMN protein. Not a lot. It, it's kind of an, an inefficient gene, but it does produce a little bit. And so the more copies you have, the more SMN protein can be produced and the better the cells can survive. How many copies do you have? I have three copies of the SMN2 gene. And thank goodness for that, because here you are, a person who's doing groundbreaking work on a disease, and you're enabled to do it because you've got you, you've lived a long a longer time than you would have if you didn't have those helpers. Is that right? Potentially, yes. If you think of these two genes as books, essentially different books, right? And so SMN one makes a book that has all all the chapters of the book are present. And so you really get the full story. And then if you look at SMN2, the machinery that, that prints and binds the book for SMN2 isn't, isn't completely efficient, has maybe a glitch here. And one of the chapters in that book is frequently omitted. And so you don't get the full story. And you know those books don't go out to be sold. They get recycled because they're not, they're not good. Um, so that's kind of the difference between the two genes. SMN2, it does produce a little bit of the full-length protein or book in our analogy, but it's not, it's, it's, um, it doesn't always make the full-length. And so the approaches that have been pursued so far for SMA therapeutics have largely focused on how can we make more of those books have all their chapters? How can we make more of the message produced from SMN2 be the full-length version? Um, and so that that has been a very successful approach. That's the one that's actually already been FDA approved. Oh. Um, so so that's that's called nusinersen. Um, and How it do you was say approved. That again? Nusinersen. Nusinersen. Yeah. And so that was approved by the FDA in 2016. So that's um, a medication. It is. It, yes. So it, it's something called an antisense oligonucleotide. I hope that's the last time I ever hear that word. <laughs> yes, I will, I will make sure not to use it anymore. Yeah. Does the medication that now exists, does it work a little like Parkinson's medications that tend to slow the progress of the disease but don't, don't bring about remission? So it really seems to depend on when treatment begins. Ah. So if you treat an infant, let's say, that is pre-symptomatic, so let's say that they were diagnosed through newborn screening 
and don't actually show signs yet of muscle weakness, then they can actually gain function. Um, and, you know, many of them can even walk when in the past they were not likely to live past their second birthday. So, um, so that's kind of like best case scenario. But the more disease that's present at the time of treatment, the less likely you are to reverse the disease. The, the goal is to prevent further progression. Right. Um, yeah. So the situation I described before about including all of the chapters in the book, that analogy, that is for the already approved therapeutic. But in the case of our therapeutic, we're trying to just increase the total amount of SMN2 message, which ultimately encodes the SMN protein. So we're, we're not so much interested in in how much of the message is full length versus a shorter form, but how much in total is there. And we we do that by blocking how quickly the SMN2 message is degraded. So essentially we, we've found a way to block the decay or the degradation of the SMN2 message so that it can stick around in cells longer and translate into more of the SMN protein. So let me say that. So you're not you're not fixing the chapters in the book. You're making the book last longer. Is that the idea? Exactly. Um, and, and so that's that's why we think that our approach could be complementary to the approach of fixing how many chapters there are in the book, right? Because they're targeting two different processes. And so since they're doing two different things, then hopefully you could put them together um, and, and have an even greater effect than using one by itself. The thing, again, on a personal level that I find so striking is how much you get done while having this disease. You seem to be speeding past people who are who are walking faster than you. <laughs> um, I'm I'm not sure. I I don't know. I I think when it's something that you're really passionate about and really motivated by, then it's it's easy to dedicate a lot of your time to it. So um, yeah, I I I do my best. <laughs> the first thing I thought when I realized that you were doing important work in a disease that you yourself have, I thought that must be the source of a lot of motivation. Is it or, or, or am I mistaken? I think there are a few things that motivate me. Definitely having the disease um, drives a lot of that passion, I think. Um, and, you know, having friends and having, you know, being so close with the disease community definitely provides a lot of motivation. Um, but also, I just, I really like science. When we come back from our break, Audrey Winklesass tells me about her unusual collaboration with her mother at the laboratory bench. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, 
and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Audrey Winklesass. I thought it was so interesting in the documentary I saw, the Ken Burns documentary called The Gene. There was your mom, not just with you at home, but with you in the lab as your, looked like your number one lab technician. <laughs> yes. Did she start out as a trained lab person, or did you... Did you train her? I mean, she seemed so professional. Yeah, so she had never held a pipette in her life. Um, But I'm very fortunate that she was very willing to learn and put up with a lot of my critiques. Um, (laughs) And yeah, no, I'm I'm very fortunate that she's... It was so um, impressive to see your mother do an operation and then hold it out to you to get your okay for how she had done with that little... (laughs) little moment yeah and then then when you gave the okay then she went on to the next step but it was striking that the mother was taking directions from the daughter and happy to do it apparently yeah i'm again i'm I'm very fortunate um that i've had her help along the way it takes a lot of time um especially with all the trial and error involved but nonetheless it's something i'm very happy to be doing and being involved in you're doing very much what physician scientists did at the NIH during the Vietnam War. I just did a podcast called Soldiers of Science, where the physician scientists that were there came up with so many breakthroughs, like the basis for statins and the first oncogene. And they described to me the importance of having patients and had a physician-to-patient relationship And then right across the hall, they'd go in and work on the basic science to figure out how to help their patients. You have that, and your patient is yourself. (laughs) It sounds like even more motivation. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because when I'm in the lab, I don't really think about the fact that I have SMA. I mean, mean, on the one hand, of course, it, it affects every part of my life. So, of course, I know that I have it. But, you know, when I'm doing my science, I'm just thinking about the science. Um, and, but then, but, but yeah, I, I mean, I do think it's, it's definitely a, an excellent motivator for sure. Is, is there ever a moment where you have to check yourself out and not be biased toward a direction you're taking because you want it to be true? Do you have more? Do, do you have more of a worry about fooling yourself than somebody who doesn't have the same disease that they're working on? You know, I've I've been asked that before, um, and I I don't think so. So I I guess a couple of answers to that. On the one hand, I don't see that much difference between my situation and between someone who let's say, works on cancer research because their mother had cancer Mm. or someone who, um, you know, does diabetes research because their 
brother has diabetes. Um, I think in all of these cases, again, it's it's really the personal experience is what provides the motivation. But I think when we're in the lab, you know, looking at our data, at least me, I, I think if anything, I, I might be extra critical, right? Because I want to make sure that what I'm seeing is is real, is true. That's what I was um, thinking. The very motivation that gives you the uh, the impetus to work hard on this problem could be the same motivation to make you really mistrust any bias that might creep in. You don't want to waste your time. You you want to you want to get the benefit of this research. Yeah, yeah, I, I hope I hope that's the case. What's your next step professionally? What are you what are you aiming toward next? So I'm actually in the process of applying to medical school. Um, you mentioned you mentioned the physician scientists a few minutes ago, um, and that's my goal as well to, you know, be able to see patients in the clinic, um, help diagnose their disease, ultimately develop treatments for those diseases in the lab, and then return them to patients via clinical trials. That's the goal. Have you been in that relationship? You, you've worked at the NIH. You, you are now. Where are you now? So I did my thesis work through the National Institutes of Health Oxford Cambridge Scholars Program. Ah. And, and it's, a, it's a really great program where you have two different mentors. So instead of doing all of your PhD work in one location, you have a lab at the NIH that you're part of, and then also in either Oxford or Cambridge. So in my case, I was in the lab of Dr. Kenneth Fishbeck here at the NIH and uh, Dr. Matthew Wood at the University of Oxford. And so um, normally people spend about two years in each location. Um, mine was a, a, bit, a bit skewed, so I was three years at the NIH and one year in Oxford. Um, but it's, you know, it's really great to have two mentors, two different continents, two different scientific and cultural perspectives. Um, I, I think having that expertise from two, two locations is, is really helpful. And were you doing similar work in each lab, but with a different approach? Uh, yes, yeah, so it was all work toward the same project. So this um, developing the strategy for increasing levels of SMN2. Um, and yeah, so so it was the same ultimate goal, um, same project. But at the NIH, we focused more on identifying and characterizing the the therapeutic agent, and mostly in cells in culture, so in fibroblasts or skin cells that were from SMA patients. Whereas in Oxford, we were more interested in testing the oligo in mice, so in, in an animal model for SMI. Mm. Unfortunately, I think I'm to the end of the time we have to talk. I find you so interesting, but I, I want to hear more from you, and I hope that you don't mind answering our seven quick questions that we do at the end of each show. Sure, of course. Can you remember what you were first curious about in your life? 
This is embarrassing. I don't know. <laughs> I, I know what I'm curious about now. Um, okay, we'll let that go. That's interesting. I'm sorry. No, you're fired up by the current enthusiasm. How about this? Newton said, if I can see farther, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. Whose shoulders do you stand on, would you say? Definitely those of my fantastic mentors that I've had through the NIH Oxford Cambridge Scholars Program um, and just colleagues. I think, you know, it's really the conversations in lab at seven o'clock at night after most people have gone that, you know, can really be the most inspiring and, and helpful. So um, I think, again, other students in the labs I've been in, as well as my mentors, um, that have really helped me along the way. Great. What part of your research do you enjoy doing the most? So I, I really like working at the bench. I really like wet lab work because, you know, you can test, you can take material from cells, run it on a blot, and see things that normally you would never be able to see with the naked eye. Right, so you can see the expression of a particular protein mm. um, and how much of that protein is in your sample. And so really being able to look at these things which are so tiny and like and, and so difficult to imagine, but, but seeing them appear in front of you is really, really exciting to me. So as a scientist, what was the best moment you can ever remember? So I remember when I when I first tested the I promised I wouldn't say this word again, but I'm going to anyway. Sorry, the antisense oligonucleotide um, that I've worked on in the lab. When I first tested the one that I've been working on for SMN2 and ran that blot, like I just mentioned, to look at how much protein, um, how much protein there was in cells that had been treated, and when I saw that it went up, um, it was just a rush of like excitement and happiness. Um, and I did shed a couple of tears, um, oh. the kind that are just like, when you're so overwhelmed with happiness. Um, anyway, so, so that is a feeling that I will probably not forget, um, which is good. You need those moments because there are also lots of frustrations <laughs> in science when, when your experiments fail. So, um, yeah, that, that, was a, that was a great moment. So that's the next question. What was your worst moment? Oh, no. There, there are a lot. Um, you know, there, when, you're, when you're trying to figure out the mechanism by which something works, like in cells, and there are so many possibilities, and so you come up with hypotheses to test these different pathways and, and mechanisms, and... You know, sometimes you just, oftentimes you, you don't see any differences in, you know, treated versus untreated or, or disease versus control. Um, and so you really have to persevere through that, which can be difficult. Um, so, so, yeah, lots of those moments where you're really hopeful that you'll, that you'll see some effects and then you do the assay and, and there's no difference. But it's okay. So that leads to the next question, next to last. What gives you confidence? The support and encouragement of 
my friends and, and the people that I respect. Um, I think that's a huge one. Um, and then secondly, I would say just trying to really be prepared. So doing all your research um, and yeah, it, it just helps me feel ready for whatever is, whatever is next. And this is a question I, I'd love to have the answer to myself. How can we help more people enjoy a love of science? I think really making the scientific community inclusive and diverse. Um, I think diversity, including for people with disabilities, is something that we really need to work on um, in, in the field. And, you know, for a field that really requires forward thinking and creativity and problem solving, I think, I think we can do better at making the field more open to people with different abilities. Yeah, I, I think having a very inclusive environment would, would really open the door for a lot of people to pursue it and enjoy it. Great. I really have enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. You made things very clear for me. It's a thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I really appreciate all that you do for science oh, communication. Thank you. thank you. Well, I sure appreciate what you're doing. Thanks so much, Audrey. Okay. Thank bye you. Bye-bye. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Audrey Winkle-Sass recently completed her Ph.D. through the National Institutes of Health Oxford-Cambridge Scholars Program. You can find out more about spinal muscular atrophy at smafoundation.org. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to the Science Clear and Vivid podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with neuroscientist Eb Fedorenko about how our brains and minds create language and the enduring mystery of how we acquire it in the first place. So far, it's been really tricky to make progress in understanding how kids learn because we don't have good tools for probing kids' brains at the age when the language explosion happens. We can put them in fMRI scanners when they're infants and can't tell us that they don't want to go there. <laughs> and then we can put kids in scanners again after about age four. But in that time between, you know, like six months and two and a half or three years old when the whole language system kind of sets in place and suddenly kids know hundreds of words and can put them together. We just don't have good tools to probe the neural responses. Uh, but I'm hoping that with the advances that keep happening, we'll eventually be able to do it. Ev Fedorenko, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Science Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. 
Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.